Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. My guest today might be in contention for most eclectic past. I suspect this is going to be a very colorful interview. She's lived all over the world and had some wild careers. Uh, Not to bury the lead, but at some point we'll get to how she became a spy while being face blind. Joyce, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) So this is interesting. Uh, BC, before Corona, (laughs) I believe we had our first interactions. Correct. It feels like six years ago. Yeah, a whole different person. It was a whole different life. (laughs) (laughs) And I could barely remember. uh, One thing that did pop out from our conversation is you revealed to me that at some point in your colorful history, you are a spy. (laughs) (laughs) Or something of the like, yeah. Or or something like that. And uh, I think you told me a story about a boat and maybe a drug dealer, although I might be mixing that up with... uh, uh, an action movie that I was watching at the same time. <laughs> uh, but I think there are some interesting stories and we're going to get to those. Um, you just told me something uh, pretty funny too. Uh, could you reveal that you had to actually go back and get permission to come on this podcast? I did. So when you've had a, uh, let say say, yeah, top secret security clearance uh, at, at some point in your life, uh, for the most part, depending on which agency you are, you have a kind of a lifelong obligation to uh, clear anything you publish or anything that lives in the public sphere, basically, uh, ahead of time. So if you're going to write an article or a book or anything, obviously, if it touches on the main bulk of your work, that makes a lot of sense. But even for things that are totally unrelated, you have to kind of send it in and they do what's called pre-publication review, where they look to make sure you're not um, publishing anything classified or sensitive or anything like that. And so I had to actually go back to my old agency, who I haven't talked to in many years, I uh, was like reaching into the, a past life and send them an email and just say, hey, I'm going to be on this podcast. Uh, do, <laughs> do I need to do something here? And they were kind of, you know, they were a little bit confused. I think usually what they're getting is people writing articles for foreign affairs or something. Um, they're like, what kind of podcast? <laughs> What's that? And I had this like launched into what I've heard, you know, a number of your guests talk about the spiel, you know, the the long conversation about, well, here's what this is. And and so I was like explaining this condition to some, you know, um, junior Intel officer at this agency so they could clear me to be here today. But uh, they did in fact say, okay, well, as long as you're not publishing any remarks and there's no written script, you're free to go. So it really encourages me to not be prepared. So a little apologies ahead of time, but. (laughs) I I love not being prepared and there's definitely not a script. (laughs) Um, So. You live in the Pacific Northwest now, but you have lived all over the world. Uh, A couple of places we share in common. uh, I believe you lived in Indiana. That's where I'm from. I grew up in Indiana, and uh, I live in Rhode Island now. I think you spent some time here. I met my wife in Michigan while while she lived (laughs) there, and I briefly lived there. Um, So we'll get to all of that. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? We'll start at the end and then we'll go back to the beginning and somewhere in there we'll talk about uh, international woman of mystery. 
All right. Well, now I have what sounds like the most bureaucratic bureaucrat job that ever bureaucrated. Um, I <laughs> work, I'm actually a force service employee. But it's kind of a coincidence. I work for something called, I run this organization called the Federal Executive Board. And we're a federal agency. And the board in that is comprised of the agency heads of every every federal agency in Oregon and Southwest Washington. So, you know, the head of the Forest Service, the head of TSA, the head of... Um, Small Business Administration, all these different federal agencies, and it's a coordinating function. So it's, you know, we deliver the anything that makes sense to do in an interagency local level. Like, you know, if you're in D.C., it's like this giant federal community. Everyone's there all the time. You know, you don't need a lot of those services because just every neighbor you have works for the feds in some way. Um, out in the provinces, <laughs> out in, <laughs> you know, in uh, cities and states elsewhere around the country, there's not that kind of innate community. So they create the FEBs to kind of facilitate that community. So we have, and we do training and emergency management. So right now, what's consuming my entire world is um, COVID-19 response. So I'm, I'm the lead agency coordinating the COVID-19 response in amongst federal agencies here. So like FEMA coordinates the response external to customers. We do the internal coordination. Um, so it's a coordination and collaboration role, which seems, you know, incredibly bureaucratic and you're not wrong to think it is, but in a way we're also a tiny little agency. So um, I get to be incredibly, I mean, we were talking about Slack earlier, uh, you know, when we, when we were getting started, I get to, I decided we needed Slack so I can just implement Slack and that is not a freedom most, you know, kind of public agencies have. So we get to do a lot of really cool stuff that's innovative too, because we're so small and lean and, uh, you know, it's one of the best jobs I ever had and I never ever imagined that this is where I'd be here now at this point kind of doing this. But, you know, I really love public services mission. I really love, um, love working for the federal government. And so um, when I came out to Portland, I live in Portland, Oregon. Uh, when I came out to Portland, I was basically fleeing the federal government. I'd kind of washed my hands of it. I We took an enormous, my husband and I both, my husband used to work for the Navy. We took a giant pay cut, a 70% pay cut. And when I went to go work at a university and my husband was adjuncting and we thought we're done with that part of our life. We're never going back. I'm never doing security clearances again. I'm like, that was great. It was awesome. And now I'm finished and I want a different kind of life. And then here I am four years later, right in the midst of it. And as you know, there's a tremendous amount of protest activity and the feds are kind of at the forefront of the media and we're right in it again. So it's like, what's the, the you know, the mob movie? Like, I keep trying to get out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think we're going to get along because I was hearing that scene in my head and, you know, like, no, don't say that, Jeff. Don't say it. Well, I'll say it. I'll I try to get out. Either. They pull me pull back, back in. in. <laughs> uh, well, so the current job you have, and I believe a lot of the others that we'll talk about, uh, are very customer facing or people facing, right? Like yeah. face facing. <laughs> so, uh you have had to exercise some skills to get over <laughs> face blindness. I mean, you've put yourself in this position. You decide you did not decide to become an author who writes in her basement. Yeah. Um, and you were before we started the uh, interview. You mentioned that, uh, like me, most of your in-person meetings are now over web conference, right? Yeah. Um, are you finding that? just this COVID experience to be relieving in that respect and that you can see someone's name at the bottom of the screen? Uh, you know, has it helped to conduct easier meetings for you? No, it's a kind of an interesting question. I've been wrestling with that myself about how I feel about it. I think if anything, you know, one thing, and I've heard other ones of your guests kind of mention this too, but being face blind has kind of forced us to develop all these other 
skills. And I think I'm better than the average person actually at reading body language and reading Mm. all these crutches that you kind of were relying on. I'm actually pretty good at that. And I don't have that in video conferencing. I can't, you know, I can only see your face a little bit and that's helpful, but I'm not seeing your posture. I'm not seeing when you're tense or when you're receptive. Oh, right. You know, you know, we're on the radio, people can't see it, but, you know, intense leaning forward or you're kind of receptive leaning back. And like, it's really hard to pick up on those clues. And I'm so, I think, malleable in my kind of engagement with other people. Um, I so adjust the script. I so adjust the way I speak. And I had, I was a, a debate when I was in college and high school. Like, I think it started back then. I learned to tailor to the audience and read, read people really well. And I don't have that. And that's, that's rough in a conversation. Cause I just feel like I've got a lot of um, choices and for how, in terms of how I want to talk to people and <laughs> there's no, indicator of which one I should be, you know, should I be the verbose bubbly? Should I be the serious calm? Like, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I have nothing to go off of in a lot of cases. And that's been rough. Um, most of my social interactions, and it's not a coincidence that when I talk about my job being bureaucratic and I've always chosen really formal professions, I think. So even when I have to go recognize someone in a crowd, like we're, there's usually name tags involved or there's like when we're sitting around the big board table, my, my staff think I'm nuts because I'm like, everyone has to have a name tag. You have to put the name tags on. It's really important. And I think oh, I, count- I love it. <laughs> I think I, I count- love you taking control of the situation. <laughs> you know, like I've, I sit in meetings all the time, but you know, they're with customers for the most part. Yeah. Never thought about demanding people put a name tag out in front of them. <laughs> well, it's easier when you're running your organization and have an Yeah. You can be like, make the name tag. <laughs> but, but, and you know what, it's crazy, but there's, it's, there's this whole myriad of things I never really realized like, oh, I bet that has something to do with my face blindness. But I always thought that was really important. And only in the last year or two kind of realized like, oh, maybe I'm crazy. Like maybe I'm driving my staff nuts because this is important because of this thing that I have. And they all just think it's weird that I'm that intent on it. Right. But, um, you know, name and agency is up there all the time. And, and it, I mean, other people, I think it, it kind of also helps us be kind to other people in a way that they're not used to either. Cause they, they may just not recognize people because they haven't seen each other enough. They're not as in it as I am. My board, like I said, are all these agency heads. Their day jobs are completely consuming. These are senior executives running entire organizations. This meeting isn't their central prior, prime priority. And so I'll remember who they all are and what they're doing there, but they may not. And so they mm-hmm. also, I think, appreciate that prompting of like, Oh yeah, that's the guy from EPA. I want to make sure I talk to him, you know? Um, and so in some ways there's like, oh, that's the thing I bring into the crowd is that like level level of kind of formal engagement. And I know some people don't like the formality and are put off by it. But I think that's just, you talk about being in sales, man. I don't understand how you could possibly. That's this very informal social kind of engagement where if you are formal, people are kind of put off by it. And that, that's got to be hard. I don't think I could do. Hmm. I hated the cocktail hours and loved the seated dinners. That's kind of always been my in, in the diplomatic world. We'll talk about that more later. But yeah, yeah. I would always turn up late to the cocktail hour and love sitting down formally at a dinner where I like know who I'm assigned <laughs> to sit next to and can move from there. One tip I just picked up from you is if you're face blind and struggling in meetings, what you need to do is organize your career such that you become the boss. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can demand. <laughs> you can demand everyone wear name tag. Everyone wears a name tag. I love it. <laughs> Um, all right, you. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, the early days for you, but uh, before we do that, 
uh, you know, the question I ask everyone is, uh, you know, this is har- so hard to grade, but how would you rate your level of face blindness? Is it uh, very mild, moderate, severe? Can you see, do you recognize your own self or your husband? Uh, so where are you on the spectrum? And I hate to use that word. <laughs> well, I have the distinct advantage of having heard a bunch of your other guests talk about this. So I feel like, okay, uh-huh. I have, I have a spectrum now. I under, <laughs> because up until I think really listening to you guys talk about it, I had Oliver Sacks and totally normal. And that was like it, right. <laughs> you know, as my examples of, of what this looked like. So it's been really great to kind of hear that. I think, um, for the most part, I recognize myself, the modern incantation, incantation of myself. Um, I sometimes struggle with like pictures of when I was a kid or like if, if I don't know the picture. Part of the problem is, you know, we, I think you're about my age. We all grew up in a generation where pictures were more rare. So you kind of knew the pictures that existed. Um, this new generation of people has a million pictures of them and don't know all of them. And so it's going to be like, it would be a lot harder to you don't have all the pictures memorized already, you know, because they're not part of your lore, if that makes sense, if you've had 5 million pictures of yourself be taken over the years. That is so interesting. You're right. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, I'm so I'm uh, 47, and absolutely, uh, there aren't that many pictures of me as a kid. Yeah. And they are, uh, they're all locked into my brain as pretty discreet uh, images, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're in the library. Kids today, or not even kids, you know, yeah. people who are 25 today have thousands and thousands and thousands of digital photos. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, I'm sorry. Go <laughs> no, ahead. No, <laughs> that's, that's I just kind of thought of that as I was talking. But um, yeah, so there, every so often something new turns up. I'm like, oh, I don't, I think that's me. But it's context, right? You get really good mm. at context. And so like, well, that's probably me. But I don't, you don't even realize you're doing that kind of deduction. But it's not that I'm recognizing it. It's just that I can infer that that is, I guess it's not really deduction, it's inference, but like I can infer from the situation that that's probably me. So it's really hard to know. It's like, I don't really actually know what the emotional experience of recognition is in some ways. Um, for me, it was always inference, um, which it seems like that's not what it actually is for other people. Um, but, uh, you know, my family, I generally recognize, although I think if my husband like ever sh- cut his hair short and shaved his beard and was somewhere I didn't expect there would be a chance there would be like this weirdness at least and a chance that I just didn't part of the problem is I don't really pay that much attention to faces right so like probably if I were looking for him I'd be able to find him but if I'm not I won't notice it's like noticing I'm not very good at noticing um but stranger you know my board these are guys these are men and women that I work with um you know I see couple times a couple times a month each of them for the most part the most involved ones and every time I have a board meeting and every time they walk into that room I have this like feeling in the pit of my stomach that I'm gonna forget I usually know that I'm supposed to know them but I'm gonna not be able to place them until they speak or talk mm. or put their name tag on their seat <laughs> I actually because I can't hand out and I put all the name tags on a desk up in front and like let them grab it and then they're like walking around the room holding it and I can see who they are um That, you know, I think one of the first times it occurred to me that this was really a thing for me um, beyond just, oh, I'm not great at faces, was uh, this friend of ours, this friend of my my husband's who uh, worked, they worked together for years. It was my husband's kind of a a pretty introverted, quiet, you know, um, potentially spectrum type guy, you know, and it uh, doesn't have a ton of close friends, but this was one of his close friends from his job. And we had had lunch with them a number of times and we had had, 
you know, socially one-on-one. I'd been to his house. I met his wife. I met his kids. Like, this is someone I actually knew decently well, you know. And we had a going away party when we were leaving D.C. And he turned up with a separate friend of my husband's. And they came up together. Instead of coming with his wife or something, he came up with his other friend. And I assumed it was her boyfriend, like her new boyfriend. Mm. And I was like, oh, it's so good to meet you. It's so good to finally <laughs> see you or something like that. And he was like, what? <laughs> you know? And oh, my God. And then, of course, it kind of dawns on me after a few minutes, like, who this is. And that was the first, like, that's not normal. Like, there's no way that I shouldn't have known that that was, you know, this Jeff. Is, you know, there's no way I shouldn't have known that was him. And that was kind of the... So that that happens, you know, I think for the most part with very close friends or, you know, direct family, I'm going to recognize them. But certainly with even in that second tier, second sphere of people. Yeah. Um, was it, So that that sounds like it was fairly recent history, too. That was probably about 10 years ago. Oh, OK. So yeah, 10 years ago, eight years ago. Yeah. I'm trying to think of when we left D.C. I think we left D.C. in 2014. So that would have been right around that 2014. At that point, uh, did, you, did you know that? prosopagnosia existed uh, and that yeah. you might have it? Yeah. So I, well, I, the first time I encountered the idea was um, I was actually on a research fellowship. This kind of gets into the work part of things. But sure. yeah. um, I did this research fellow with the, uh, with the National Intelligence Council, and I was looking at cultural cognition, which was, I was really interested. This was like 2006, 2007, like right Cultural cognition. Okay, yeah. I've never heard those two words together. <laughs> I'll explain. Um, this is right after, in the aftermath of the kind of invasions of Iraq in, in Afghanistan when things all started to go south. And I think we as a um, security establishment started to realize like, hey, culture is important. Who knew? You know, this dawning light bulb. And I'm in my late 20s and I kind of entered this community from a very culturally, you know, I was a Fulbright scholar. I'd had a bunch of languages. I'd lived abroad. Like I had this kind of somewhat actually unique cultural skill set in, de- in the Department of Defense at the time. And so one of my first jobs as a civilian, I was an Air Force officer before, but when I got out and as a civilian was working on tradecraft and methodology in this, in this intelligence world and specifically looking at cultural learning. And so I was on this, I got this research grant where I spent a year sitting in the National Intelligence, at the National Intelligence uh, Headquarters, uh, actually out at CIA and looking at how people learn um, culturally, cultural learning. And so I think a lot of that domain up until, you know, that period of time had been really anecdotal. You know, it was like, well, family is important to Chinese people. Like, it's like anthropological, anecdotal, it's descriptive. But no one had done a ton of work looking at, like, what does that actually mean in a cognitive sense? Like, what's going on in the brain? What is that, you know? And functional MRI technology at that point had really advanced to such a degree that you could actually ask those questions and look at what that meant. And oh, this is not just sort of a, a liberal arts study of it. This is was a scientific like, approach. Yeah. So what I really wanted to do was put some scientific meat behind what did that mean and how can we measure it? And then if we're looking to recruit people with these skill sets, what type, you, know, you can measure it so you can see what kinds of experiences give people this cultural, this flexibility. And I'll talk about what that means in a second. But um, And then if we want to find those people, where what kinds of experiences they have that would have given them that actual flexibility? And when I say flexibility, I mean, there's this idea of um, priming and being able to think, model your thinking after a particular culture. So I always, the, the quintessential example I, I say is if you, there's this guy, Richard Nesbitt out of the University of Michigan, who did a bunch of these studies where he put up students from China and students from the United States in a functional MRI and asked them to describe a picture and looked at their eye paths and then their brain kind of mechanisms, what was going on in the brain. And the Western students overwhelmingly would 
look at the, there's a house on a, you know, picture your normal kids drawing of a house sitting in a field. And the Westerners would look at the house and describe the house and kind of circle out from the house in the center. Okay, well, the house, you know, there's a house with red windows and a, a red door and curtains and there's some flowers right around the house and then a tree and some grass and they kind of get the picture get bigger from the object center until in the end they're like, yeah, and the sky is blue and there's three birds and, you know, that was how they describe it. Um, the Chinese students overwhelmingly would do the opposite. They'd start wow. at, okay, well, there's a, it's, it's a sunny day out. It's cloudy. It's... You know, it's a sunny day out. There's two clouds in the sky. You know, it's a pretty open piece of land. And then eventually they'd get to the house. So a lot of uh, the Chinese students would start with context and move to object. And the Western thinkers would start with object and move to context. And it's measurable. You can measure eye scan rates. You can measure the words coming out of their mouth. And you can measure the parts of their brain that are activated. Because when you're describing uh, localized color, that's a different part of your brain than when you're describing um, situation, basically. And so he did all these measurements. It was really interesting because you could see, And then the next question was, well, what kinds of experiences cause one person to think one or the other? So people who are bicultural, um, turns out language doesn't actually have. Language is a proxy. It helps you access culture, but it doesn't have a lot to do with it. Um, but people who negotiated in one culture or another. So these kind of, when I lived in China for years, I remember you come across these kind of douchey finance guys, right? Like had no interest in China at all. They're just there to make money. They didn't care about, you know, they... Occasionally, they have a Chinese girlfriend, but that was it. They were like this archetype guy. And turns out those guys actually have some of the most dem like measurable cognitive flexibility because they're negotiating in that culture. So the more they can, there's something real at stake. And that's a big part of kind of, I think, what rewires your brain is having that the, the kind of adrenaline and cortisol that something's really at stake. So that's how your brain rewires itself. Um, whereas training or practicing or learning about it doesn't have that same stress hormone. So it's not actually rewiring your brain in the same way. So these guys with who often spoke you know, little to no real Chinese, you'd stick them in an MRI, you'd, you'd prime them to think about negotiating in, Chinese, you know, in China, like give them some kind of scenario or something, and then have them describe the picture. They'd, without exception, do it like the Chinese students. <laughs> From the outside in. Yeah. But wow. you talk to them in kind of an American or Western context about Western things, you know, let's talk about, you know, the, 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 you know, the Chicago Bulls this year or whatever. And they would do it like a Westerner. They could flip, basically, based on context, the way their brain was functioning. Um, and, and how long ago was this? Are we talking 15, 20 years no, ago? No, this was like 10 years ago. This was 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Gosh, time flies. Probably about yeah. actually like 13 years ago in mid, okay. late, late 2000s. Okay, so at that point in your life, you are uh, aware of what a f an fMRI even is. Yeah, right? so I'm, and, I am in it. <laughs> yeah. I'm designing these studies. I'm kind of like. Um, and how did you find out about face blindness? Did that occur so around when the same you time? Come across this kind of like neuroscience because I'm not a neuroscientist. Like I was a Chinese major in college. Like when I went to grad school for Southeast Asian studies, but. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm mathematically and scientifically literate. And so when I'm coming across, you know, neuroscience for dummies, you come across Oliver Sacks at some point, right? <laughs> and, and I loved it. I was like passionate. I thought it was so interesting. And so um, reading his stuff, I kind of came across that description. I was like, oh, that's funny. You know, I'm not great at faces either. That's, you know, I've, I've known like I'm not great at recognizing people. I've, you know, had at various occasions in my life wondered if like, oh, am I a, you know, am I, am I a psychopath? Like, why don't I know people? Oh. Why don't I care about people taking the time? Okay, I'm clearly not a psychopath. Like I, you know, attach emo emotional. I want to pa <laughs> pause you for just a minute because that's an interesting uh, little sliver there. I, 
for my whole life, I've had that same. And I don't know if it's face blind people or maybe just everybody has this thought at times, especially when you're a teenager and you're trying to figure out how you fit in the world. I mean, everybody has a hard time as a teenager, right? Yeah. But, but I very often wondered, you know, uh, actually, I was um, I was watching um, the Elton John movie with my daughter uh, two nights ago. The, 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 rec- the recent Elton John movie. I don't know if you got a chance to see that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's done in almost like a, a musical fashion. Okay. It's not it's not just a straight you know acting job. Anyway, uh, I I kind of got a little emotional watching it. You know, like it, it tugged at the heartstrings like any Disney movie does. And I looked at my daughter. I said, you know, uh, this is one of those things that I like every once in a while because sometimes I wonder if I'm a psychopath. But no, I'm a, I'm human. <laughs> no, I'm normal. Like. <laughs> No, I, That'd be an, you know, that's going to be an interesting one to find out if there is, uh, you know, if, if that's common with people. I should start asking that as a standard question. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, but I remember uh, that feeling. It's like, oh, I just don't seem to care about people yeah. as much because I don't know who they are. And like, at, you know, I was talking to my best friend about this years ago and just being like, do you think, you know, I don't. And part of it is also a little bit, I think there's this gendered narrative laid over it where women, you know, you're supposed to care. Like girls, when I was, I remember being in junior high age, like. Girls, you're supposed to care about people. You're supposed to like be this interpersonal kind of friendly, soft, warm person. And that was just never my personality, which I don't think is entirely. I can't blame that all in face blindness. I'm just not that like warm and cuddly of a person. Um, but it was laid on with that, like, oh, I've always felt like I wasn't quite, you know, up to speed on the social piece from that standpoint. And then, but then on the other hand, like, man, I've will be brought to tears at like a discarded item in the trash because like no one loves it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> It's this weird pathos. And sometimes I wonder if a little bit of that is the, the way we feel about things isn't constructed in this human way. Like if I wasn't bonding with faces as a baby, um, it's like the humanness of the interlocutor doesn't matter as much. I can feel that way about anything <laughs> that for whatever reason I latch onto, I'm capable of feeling I'm not a psychopath, but the idea of it being human or non-human kind of like doesn't matter as much or something. Yeah. That so that way. when you read uh, sex, that was yeah. probably a relief then. Yeah. Well, it was just this kind of hint of it. And that was kind of all I had for a little bit. Oh, I bet, you know, there's this thing that some people have that's really bad. You know, obviously that's not me because I wouldn't be functioning as well in life if that were true. My dad also has a lot of trouble with faces and has, um, been is is not the most interpersonal outgoing person and you know we kind of talked about it like hey do you think that's why i wonder you know huh maybe it's heritable like but never really diving into it until this experience that i mentioned that was like oh that's not that's not right but fortunately i had had this lexicon previously of neuroscience and cognitive science to like oh i should go back now and read more about that and then a few years ago maybe only like four years ago three years ago my husband bought me a book of um studies on face recognition, like the actual kind of journals from psychological science studies on face recognition and the mechanics of it. And like all the anecdotes of people talking about these big discoveries they had, I was like, oh yeah, well, yeah, that's not normal. <laughs> you know, it was reading all these things that a hundred percent resonated with me, but having someone describe them in the context of, of abnormality or of, you know, not anyway, that, and that was like, Oh, now I'm understanding the scope of this and the fact that this was really actually a thing and not just, you know, a talent or lack of the lack thereof. Those kind were, of. were you able to go back at that point and, you know, think through experiences you had as a kid? 
Yeah. Uh, and say, aha, that's what that was. Do you remember <laughs> any of those examples? Yeah, let me think. Um, a little bit was, I think, and, and this isn't so much a, a particular experience, but a behavior. You know, I, in relationships, when I was like a young teenager, you know, a young 13, 14, 15, when you have these like immensely powerful emotional relationships at that age and uh, romantic relationships. And I would always push to physical really quickly, you know, and I was comfortable. I didn't have any kind of like weird overarching morale, you know, like I wasn't, we wasn't growing up in an overly Catholic or Christian household or something like that, where I'd have these barriers to it. So there wasn't like a moral barrier to it. So I was kind of free to do what I wanted. And it always just felt so comfortable when things were physical. And I realized now part of that ability was like, oh, if someone come, you know, if this person I'm dating, because, you know, you're like 14, right? These are people that you've met for like two weeks and then you love them more than anything mm. else in the whole world. Um, it was like, oh, if they come up and like hold my hand right away, I know who they are. <laughs> like, I know what we're supposed to, this right. idea of, I know what we're supposed to feel. It's like emotionally comforting to know exactly who you are and where I stand with you in any moment. And I look back and I was like, oh, there's like this whole pattern of behavior. I think that was that emotional connection that I'm not, you know, I would read stories about people saying, oh, they looked longingly in each other's eyes for like 20 minutes. And every time I've ever looked at in someone's eyes, it's been a constructed activity where I'm wondering, like, how long am I supposed to do this? Like, how should I be emoting? They expect me to be emoting in some way, right? Like, what is the right, correct? Like, I'm not actually feeling that. I'm getting no pathos from that engagement. But when we would, you know, when you're touching, you, I am feeling it. So if we just skip over the part where we look at each other's eyes for a long time and actually just like make out and then I'll know what we feel about <laughs> each other. <laughs> you know? It's like I couldn't understand emotion in that that really primal way that you're connecting. And it makes perfect sense now to me if I think about how humans connect to one another through faces kind of evolutionarily. And then, of course, when you're 14 and all your hormones are firing and you're really like all on lizard brain, that's like where where you're going to. Um Anyway, That's so. an interesting connection. And I, yeah, I can totally see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up in the Midwest. Is I that did. right? Chicago. As well? Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Well, I, I was down South a little bit further from you. <laughs> I think y'all were the sophisticated <laughs> that part types. Of I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. How did you make your way from uh, a teenager in Chicago to being a spy. <laughs> well, before I jump into that, I thought of one more story, if that's all right. Sure, about, yeah, please do. About recognize uh, think stories. So there's this lore. You know how families have lore, right? Yeah. There's this lore from my childhood about my dad um, shaving his beard and his mustache. My dad is like this big guy. He's a presence. You know, he's six foot six foot six. He's got this big beard and mustache and wore flannel shirts and just kind of never spoke a lot. You know, but was this the greatest dad in the world, you know, but he was this figure, this presence in the world. And this lore is that, you know, as a little baby, uh, my dad shaved his beard and mustache once and I freaked out and like, wouldn't, I was crying and screaming and wouldn't let him hold me. And it was just kind of told, oh, isn't that funny? I think back on that now, I must have been terrified because my dad disappeared. The strange man who kind of smells like him is holding me and no one thinks anything is wrong, (laughs) you know, and especially having a child of my own now where I've, I can relate to what, like, just how 
terrifying of an experience that must be for a child. Like, I have no idea who you are and everyone thinks it's fine, <laughs> you know? And that's such a normal thing. Like, that that it, that can happen with families. You're always looking for funny little things yeah. w- with kids, you know? It's, it's like if you had a pet dog and uh, you walk in wearing a Jason mask, the dog goes berserk, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and we all laugh at that, but yeah, if you were actually face blind as a baby, (laughs) that is a, that, that's a horrifying event (laughs) for for your intellect at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, that was one other, you asked for stories. Mm -hmm. That was one other story that I kind of has always stuck out and I've in retrospect kind of, Oh, I see, I see why that was (laughs) terrifying. And I used, there's another dream, a recurring, you know, recurrent nightmare I used to have as a kid. I have, I'm a little cousin, he's a couple years younger than me, Stephen. Um, would spend a lot of time. We, we grew up a few blocks from each other. And this reoccurring nightmare I would have is that I was supposed to watch him out in the front yard. You know, we're growing up in a city, this kind of very city environment. We'd play out in the front, all the neighbors beyond the porches watching you and stuff. And I was, I was supposed to watch him out in the front. And he turned into a stick and I couldn't find him. Oh. And it's all of a sudden, again, this idea of like, oh, that's like not a fear that normal people have, that they're not going to recognize their own family member. But that was my like child brain putting into something that was more understandable, that fear of like, I'm going to lose him because I won't be able to recognize him and I'm supposed to be in charge of him. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. I wonder if there are, uh, you know, face blind researchers listening to this <laughs> podcast who like, oh, I can go test that. <laughs> It's been interesting how dreams have really kind of been a place for me, I think, over the years where some of this, the fear and anxiety piece have come out a little bit more. Um, When my son was first born, I used to have a recurrent nightmare of not being able to recognize him at the daycare. Like, yeah. and I remember talking to, again, another parent about this, like, oh yeah, you know, all the the night, the dreams you get with your your kid, because you have these fiercely protective, like, and they're like, oh yeah, you're like, you know, you worry that they fall down, you can't get to them on time. Like, yeah, and the one where you like worry where you can't recognize them at the school, and they're like, that's not one I've had. <laughs> I don't think I've had that particular one. Like, oh, oh, like, that's just a Joyce thing. <laughs> yeah, it turns out. And that honestly, I do think that was kind of you meant. I mentioned I could recognize my family pretty well, but like babies kind of all look alike, man. Like, there's a decent chance that if you put them in different clothes and put them in a pile of babies, I wouldn't have known which one he was. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Like, uh, so I have uh, three kids. They're two years apart. They're all teenagers now. Um, and we've got uh, three baby pictures in order on the wall uh, mm. in our in our dining room, and you know they're very you know almost the exact same shot and composition. I really can't tell which is which. <laughs> if you change the order on me, I, I think I would. I've got two girls and a boy. I think I might even get the boy wrong. But oh, wow. um, but yeah, that, that yeah, all babies do look the same. <laughs> I, I I think yeah. Yeah. When they so took him did, away at the hospital, I actually like marked on his hand. <laughs> I wanted to make sure what they what he brought back to me was the same one. Like you're like we only do this for twins normally, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> nope. Uh, so all right. So um, yeah, how, how did you make your way to uh, getting into the government, <laughs> becoming a spy, uh, and what and, and what do you mean by spy? Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's jump into all of that. So I think, you know, I was always interested in culture and language. Like my family was this very working class family in Chicago. Like I was the first first generation college student. I was, um, you know, the first one to go abroad. I went on like the student study abroad when I was 13, which was like, or 14, which was, you know, unheard of. I had never even met anyone that had gone abroad. And for me Where to go Where did you on, go then? England, France, and Switzerland. Nice. 
And uh, it was, and I remember doing it, being like, "This is the only chance I'm ever going to get this in, at this in life." So I have to relish it. It was like that's how small my world was. It was I couldn't imagine a life where I could just kind of go to England if I wanted, basically whenever, you know. Um, but that was just the world I grew up in, and so I, I loved it. I was hooked basically at that age on travel and study, and it was like exotic, and I really I enjoyed being, I think, different than the other people around me. Um, you know, that arrogant teenager, like, I'm going to do great things. But that, that was the form it took was this um, international piece. And uh, so I went to college. I uh, had no way of paying for college, basically. And I knew that. And so um, took did ROTC at Notre Dame. That's when I lived in Indiana, mm-hmm. South Bend. Uh, it's kind of the lamest teenage rebellion in history because my parents are neither like Catholic or especially military oriented. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll show you guys. They're playing the, I think they're playing the long game there pretty well. Um, but I did ROTC in Notre Dame basically to pay for school. And so because I was majoring in language, I started out actually as a Russian major and then hated Russian and switched to Chinese. Um, but I think... Watch a move when you... Uh, when you arrive, it's Ruski Azik. Why did I not like studying Russian? Um, I loved Russian literature. That's kind of what brought me to it, like this Dostoevsky. And and like, you know, I love that genre, but I had a terrible teacher. The program there wasn't great. Um, And I realized he was like one of the only teachers in the program. And I realized like freshman year that this was a miserable experience and it's just going to be this for four years. So it's time to find a new program. So for whatever reason, despite um, actually deliberately failed my final, my freshman, first semester, my freshman year, because if I got a C, the Air Force would, the Air Force has to approve the change in language. And uh, they would have pat me on the back and be like, oh, college is hard. Everyone struggles. Mm -hmm. Keep at it. But I failed it on purpose. So I'd get a D. So then they're like, okay, you can change. (laughs) Like, you don't have this. We see that. Um, And so I switched to Chinese there. Which, why on earth they decided that I could fail Russian but somehow succeed in Chinese, I don't know. But they were right. I did pretty well in Chinese. I mean, I speak a little Russian and I studied a little bit in college. I chose Russian because <laughs> my other option was Japanese, which didn't even have an alphabet. It just had symbols. I'm like, that's impossible. <laughs> it seems to me like you went from hard to harder, like much harder. <laughs> like hard to explain i don't know but it made sense at the time and i was definitely i was interested in the security side of thing not the business side so i knew i didn't want to do like my choices at the time were arabic russian spanish or chinese no sorry arabic russian japanese or chinese you had to pick the harder languages and like and so you know i didn't have much interest in the middle east and i didn't have much interest in business and so by process of elimination if i didn't want to lose my scholarship uh chinese (laughs) and it was no initial great passion with china or something Mm. that led me there but um you know, I did that, and then I studied abroad in China. And I was uh, at the time I was the, one of the first Air Force ROTC people they ever let go to China. Um, I got to China. The program it was like this giant pyramid scheme almost, where as long as the the you know, the Air Force paid Notre Dame thirty grand a year for my tuition at the time, it sounds cheap now, but man, it was a lot then. Um, Air Force paid Notre Dame thirty grand a year for my tuition. The, Air, the Notre Dame paid some study abroad manager because Notre Dame didn't have its own study abroad at the time in China. I was like, there's three of us that ever that studied abroad in China that year. Um, so Notre Dame paid some study abroad program, 6,000 a year study abroad program, paid the Chinese university like 600 bucks a year. And as long as everyone got a signed report card that said I passed, everyone was happy in this chain. And I wasn't getting a lot of the classes. So I got this actually... It's the way things work informally, you know, I was dating this Australian guy and he had a friend of a friend who worked at the Chamber of Commerce there. And I got myself a job at the Chamber of Commerce doing events and uh, market 
uh, a lot of the time, a lot of U.S. firms were looking for Chinese market partners. Wildly unqualified for any of this. I was 20 years old. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was there in China um, and said I wanted to do it and raised my hand. And so there we go. <laughs> it's, it was like the Wild West at the time there, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and so I got the job and it was great. And I learned, and as long as they, they called it like a 12 credit internship and everyone signed the paper and everyone was happy. And I had an Air Force colonel running the program at the time who just said, you know, he was on his twilight tour, meaning he was about to retire. So he thought it was fantastic. I was doing this. He kind of really latched on. I was the worst Air Force cadet ever. I mean, like I never went, I never did the physical training. I didn't like, I was just terrible. I was not that into the military. I was never, you know, all of my other kind of like, yeah, you know, I joined, I want to do this my whole life. And I was kind of like, yeah, I wanted to pay for school. <laughs> like, I always feel bad on like veterans day and stuff because it was always such a utilitarian relationship with the military. It wasn't driven out of great sense of patriotism. Although service was a really important part of my, um, I think ethos. I wanted to be in a job. If I was going to work hard, it had to matter. And so, insofar as that was there, but anyway, um, you know, I, he had my back and he supported me. I kind of came back and said, I want to stay another semester. And he's like, all right, you know, you get me the paperwork I need. I'll make it happen at the Air Force level. And so I stayed a year in China, which no one had at that point. Uh, and so I came into the Air Force, I came into active duty with this just really weird life experience. Like I was basically an expat in China. You know, I made an ex, I made more money in that job than that internship. It was, you know, paid um, than I did for many years after <laughs> in life. You know, I had a driver, a car, an apartment, a maid, like I was living this totally other life at 20, came back to the U.S., um, had to, to finish my senior year of college, had this like total culture shock of going back to like the world hadn't moved in this little space and I had had this whole other life. And right. then so, September 11th happened and um, the whole deal changed dramatically. <laughs> what I had signed up for changed dramatically. And um, I wound up doing then right after I graduated uh, doing a Fulbright uh, in Singapore. That same colonel, again, I said, hey, I really want to do this. You know, it's clear that cultural, like, look at the world right now. Like, we need people who understand culture. Um, and he, again, had my back. Basically, there was no way, nothing in the Air Force policy at the time allowed me to um, take a year off before I came on to active duty to go do the Fulbright. Uh, there was, but there was a provision that allows you to delay your active duty service if you were getting married. Um, and so he's like, are you getting married? <laughs> said, yes, I'm getting married. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I wasn't dating anybody or anything at the time, but, um, we checked that box and I went and did that year in Singapore. So I did a Fulbright and got my master's degree in Singapore. I, I got a little, uh, off of your timeline there as you're telling that story. And I was wondering, oh God, is, is her husband going to walk in right now and say, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Token. <laughs> No, um, but yeah, so then I went to grad school in Singapore and did that and then um, kind of worked in that world a lot and then came back and did my time on active duty in the Air Force I went to, and went to Intel school. And if you had all these languages, which at that point I had Chinese and I also studied Indonesian when I was in, in Singapore, didn't speak it great, but Indonesia is also the world's easiest language. So what I could get out of a year I did. Um, your intel was obviously kind of that career path. And for me, it was always this idea of like, oh, I want to I want to be involved in these world events, but I never wanted to be the face of it. Like, I don't want to be the politician. I don't, you know, I worked, I interned for a state uh, rep in Illinois um, back in the day as a, like a job in high school and stuff. And I never wanted to be that person. I wanted to be the person behind that person. And some degree, I wonder, you know, when I think back on, on face blindness and the role play and all this, I never wanted to be the person who had to know who everybody was and shake mm. hands and remember their kids' names. And that seemed like a superpower that people had. Right. Um, and again, you that's, that, that's where you, you see that. You see that with some, some politicians, right? Yeah. Like, 
I, I, I was listening to a story about um, Joe Biden, I think, who uh, met somebody from one of his first campaigns. He was like the teenager at a college who drove him around. <laughs> Uh, and he, and he met him like 10 years later and he says, and, and he didn't know the guy's name, but he knew the name of the school where he drove him around, like, I don't know, 20 years prior, 30 years prior. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's an impossibility. Yeah. And I remember hearing stories like that and the generals, that's like a thing that people, whenever they're talking about military generals, it's like part of the leadership lore that there's like a cloud of leadership lore that follows these guys around in their life i think and that's one that's a piece of it always it's like you know he met this airman three years ago and he saw him out on the flight line and he knew exactly who they were and asked how their baby was doing or whatever right and i always thought that was bullshit (laughs) like i remember hearing that and being like this this just stories that people make up he's got a good assistant who like you know tracks things like that's but you do these giant mental gymnastics i think with any kind of kind of cognitive difference you do these gymnastics to rationalize it to yourself to like make it well that's just bullshit that's just exaggerate i remember seeing police lineups in movies i always thought that well that's not like clearly it's not actually true like they don't do that nobody could do that right <laughs> like it's just and then you think about it now it's like oh that's ridiculous like what this wouldn't be a universal thing in all crime movies and stuff if it weren't true but like somehow i convinced myself that it's not me i'm not the problem it, that's just made up <laughs> you know like nobody can do that Oh. There's been a few uh, stories like that on this podcast, uh, you know, where, yeah, in a legal sense or a criminal sense, you you need to be able to identify yeah. someone, you know, an attacker, an Antonella's case. Uh, uh, well, the same with uh, Jesse Milliken in the last episode. And yeah, that um, I think this podcast has sort of terrified me a little yeah. more about you know, when is that going to happen to me? Like, when am I going to be the only guy who got a good look at the bank robber's face and I let everyone down? <laughs> yeah. No, I, or like, I mean, one of your podcasts, a uh, female, I think was talking, a woman was talking about um, having a stalker at some point and like, yeah, how that was Antonella. I, yeah. Yeah. And like, oh man, I would have no idea, you know, how many have I had? And I don't even know, like maybe in some ways I'm oblivious to it. That's a benefit, but um Oh, uh, so speaking of Antonella, uh, she's she lives in Asia full time, but she's yeah. from Italy. Uh, so, so you were an American living in China for at least a year, first first go, right? Yeah. And uh, in that in that life, were you like working in an intelligence building, or you know, just surrounded by other expats, no, or yeah, were that, you out in the community? That first time, I had nothing to do with the intelligence community other than oh, okay. being like a student in the Air Force, basically, yep. like. Um, so I worked for the American Chamber of Commerce there and, uh, you know, I worked with a number of expats basically from all over the world, not just Americans, but, um, day to day I was out in the community all the time. I lived in like Chinese student housing and I had, you know, a lot of our staff were Chinese and stuff. So it was kind of pretty, a pretty good mix of people that and, I was hanging out with. you were fully fluent in Chinese, could find your way around, uh, could have a conversation with shopkeepers yeah. and everything. Yeah. yeah. Thereabouts at least. So. Yeah. So, uh, that was your first time? To was, Asia, like you, you hopped on a plane and went to China. Yep, that was my first time. So my parents thought I was nuts. I think my parents always thought I was a little nuts for these choices. But um, yeah. So one thing. So so one thing that uh, you know I I often wonder about in a situation like that. Now you're a stranger in a strange land, and um, everyone is within a similar. Uh, 
height range and they all have black hair pretty much, uh, you know, to, you know, if you're not used to it, maybe you're not used to analyzing faces for the kinds of feature differences that you would over there. Did you experience that when you got there and you're like, oh my God, I, I don't, I don't know who anyone is. You know, I've always wondered that too. And honestly, I don't. And I, it, it's never been that much harder for me to recognize anyone within my own culture other than like, obviously, you know, there's not like big redhead guy that stands out in a crowd or like mm. the occasional outliers in, in Western society in the same way um, with like literally different coloration or something. And there's not the racial diversity. So sometimes if you've got a group of six people and you know, you're looking for your Indian friend, it's easy to yeah. identify, you know, that person. Um, but, you know, outside of that, just kind of on a day to day, you line up 10 kind of white guys and 10 Chinese guys and have the same experience with either of them. But the body language piece is a big part of it. And I think I had for so many years lie, relied on this crutch of body language. And it's part of the reason when we kind of get into the spy stuff here. Um, mm. I am good at reading people. I'm good at understanding how they're actually feeling regardless of their words. Because I think people who are good at that learn to adjust their facial expression. And certain cultures have very neutral facial expressions compared to Western society tends to emote a lot through their face. Um, that is not true in a lot of East Asian cultures. And, but I was never that reliant on the face anyway. You know, I'm looking right. at how, how are their shoulders? How are their, where are their hands? What are they doing with their leg? Like all these things I just always picked up on because people do it differently. And so they're really identifying characteristics, how someone walks across the room. You know, I can identify people all the time from their walk. Um, and so once I had this experience in that culture and really learned it, uh, it's like I had this extra power that my colleagues didn't have, I think. Um, I was more, you know, it's, it's different. The body language means different things there, but you kind of, it's like learning a language. Once you learn that, it's like I had this code that I could crack that others couldn't. And I could adjust my own body. I, I, I'm a very miry person in a lot of mm. ways. Um, and I'll mirror language a lot. You know, I'll start, I notice when people have accents, I'll like, my own language starts becoming chopped in a weird way, or, you know, I've just kind of adopted that over time. And same thing with body language, I'll start moving my body in a different way. And so I'm... And part of the root of that may just be that there's a portion of your brain that's hyper-developed to even notice yeah. the movement of other people's bodies. One, want to, want to connect. Because if I can't connect at you by looking into your eyes, I have to, there's a lot of science around how mirroring body, you know, there's all this like crummy business books that tell you to like mirror the body language of the person right. you're negotiating. Like, listen, it's not <laughs> untrue, you know, and you just kind of do that naturally. But I think I did it more and I could notice it more in some way. Um, and it made me good at that. And it wouldn't, it wasn't, I wasn't great at like, I would have never been like the spy out in the, you know, the Americans, you ever watch the Americans? It's like one of my favorites. Oh, I love it. Love yeah. That, TV set. That, that was never going to be me because I can't recognize people. And that's like, like a huge part of being like that kind of super secret operative in the street kind of thing is like, if you don't recognize at a very minimum, I have to be able to know if I've seen somebody before. But I was always working on the diplomacy side of things, the um, where, you know, we were known to each other. There was no secret about who we were, or who we worked for, but we still had to negotiate something that was really sensitive or problematic or whatever. And in that sphere, it was really good. Like I could function really well in that, that area. Um, you know, I didn't have to recognize you. We were assigned to the same room together. Go. <laughs> yeah. And now we can kind of talk through it and, and read each other. And I think to some degree, it's how you make other people feel, too. I think I have I generally seem to make other people feel comfortable in a, in a weird way. 
Um, that's never really made a lot of sense to me why I do that. And I think it might be that body language thing that I'm moving like you are. I'm mirroring your tone, your all these other kind of secondary communication things. You know, it's funny when I when I think about my own experience, and and I've talked about this on the show. Uh, you know, one observation I make is, you know, I, I generally am a likable person, or or people like I think if mo- if you ask most people, you know, to describe me, they'd say, oh yeah, he's always so nice and so warm. Uh, but part of that is, I'm sure, just a you know, a coping mechanism for going to the grocery store and I might run into someone that yeah. I should know. And so I have to be open and warm to everyone I see. Right. Yes. And so that's been baked into who I am. Uh, but this is similar, but a little bit of a different wrinkle, right? Like yeah. I, I think, like I sense that you're paying like your ability to pay so much more attention to body movement and expression, uh, has manifested in like a, a more adept mirroring function. Yeah, maybe. And it's communication, right? So it's like I'm communicating in ways or something that work for people. And But it's the opposite. I remember hearing you talk about that, how you go to the grocery store and, and you kind of have to be this open person. I've gone to great lengths to cl- like in certain domains to close myself off because I don't want to have those incidental things. So, you know, I'll put the hoodie up and, and, never make eye contact with people and just kind of like be in my own world and be gruff so that when I didn't recognize you, I have this excuse of like, Oh, I'm sorry. I was, you know, right. I was in this other world. I was paying attention or something like that's always been my coping method. And I think the I earbuds just, and podcasts are great for yeah, me, right out yeah. in public, <laughs> but I flip between those two a lot where, okay, now is the time where I am. A, and that's, I think part of the reason when I thought, okay, am I a psychopath? Like you shouldn't just be able to flip that switch of I hate everybody to like, hey, everybody, I'm warm right. and welcome. But that was like the survival mechanism you kind of develop, right? And it, yeah. it's like no social interaction in my life, like ever. There's like three people I can interact with where it feels totally natural and easy, um, where it doesn't feel constructed. I'm not in my own head about how should I be acting? How should I be presenting? Um yeah. And I, I think it's part of that is you just become, you have to become conscious about what you're feeling in an interactive way because it's not natural. And, you know, I, that idea of, I don't know what to feel about somebody when I see them, because if I can't recognize them, I don't know how I feel. Like I'm not feeling in the same way as other people. And I've wondered, I've just started to really think about that. Like what impact does that have on our relationships <laughs> where our initial feelings towards everybody is consciously derived as opposed to like subconsciously, you know, mm. lizard brain pushed up. Right. Right. I don't know what that means, but it seems like it probably means something. When you ask that question, I'm really curious, you know, how yeah. does that, and it's from birth, right? When you're a baby looking at your mother, you're not, I'm not feeling about my mom in the same way that other babies are. Um, it's got to have a big impact, right? <laughs> I don't know. Definitely, yeah. So what kind of spy did you ultimately become? <laughs> yeah. And did I have that right? Was there some sort of a boat story that you told me? I don't remember now. Shoot, I should go back and look at that. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 came, I came to the Air Force and I was doing intelligence work, like analysis work. So I was looking at, I was out in Hawaii at the U.S. Pacific Command and was doing... Um, sitting here working basically the China desk and uh, China East Asia piece and analyzing military 
things. So providing you know, Chinese bomber forces or whatever, you know. What do they call that? Uh, SIG Intel or SIGTEL? No, What's that's this? just analysis. So SIG, okay. there's, there's kind of two main divisions to the intelligence community. There's analysis and operations. And operations are collectors of various kinds. So SIGINT is a kind of collection where you're listening to signals and you know, uh, processing signals. Human intelligence are people out in the field gathering information. There's um, imagery intelligence, so satellites taking pictures. Those are all sources. Those are all operations. And then there's the analysts who take all of those sources and put them together into a picture or story or what does it mean? You know, we have all this data. Now, what does this mean? And so I started out on the analysis side. I was never on the collection side. Um, and did that for a few years, but basically got out of the Air Force as soon as I could because it was a slow career path that I wasn't, I wasn't that into planes. <laughs> Being honest. Mm. I liked intelligence. I liked culture. I liked, you know, Asia, but I don't really care about planes and the air force is not a friendly place. If someone doesn't care very much about planes. <laughs> um, so I left that and became a civilian for the department of defense. And that's where I started doing the cultural cognition work. And a lot of that focused on East Asia because that's where my background was, but it was timed well with just general kind of, U.S. policy developing towards Asia and deepening towards China. And then uh, got a little tired of kind of being in this, and that was tradecraft. So we were developing methodologies primarily for analysts. How do you look at things, you know, what kind of frameworks can you look at things from a cultural perspective for to make sure you're adjusting and all of this. But I got a little bit, I missed being a practitioner. You know, it was, it was great doing the methodology. It was really cool to be involved in this like deep, deep, part of the intelligence community, but I miss being a practitioner. And so I swapped over to our, uh, it was called International Engagement Office. And that was really those really, it was diplomacy. So it's still military, still DOD, um, but uh, intelligence diplomacy. So we worked with the intelligence services of other major countries around the world. And I always said, I had the frenemy accounts, right? So I had, I had China, I had Russia, I had all these like where the relationship wasn't straightforwardly a partnership, but you know what? No matter what's going on in the world, everybody hates pirates. <laughs> That's like a true story. Everybody hates pirates. We can all agree on that. Let's start there. Um, but it was incredibly um, interesting work. That was like our first relationship with China post Tiananmen, our first relationship with our Russian counterparts post 91. Um, and I was brought in as one of the few people in that community who had actually worked in a non-adversarial way with initially for the Chinese. Like I worked collaboratively with the Chinese before, and that's a really unusual piece of experience for somebody at that level to have had in the military, because most people kind of stay sheltered and haven't lived abroad and all that. So I want to find that Air Force Colonel somewhere. Colonel Gary, if you're ever listening to this, <laughs> you know, you were entirely right to take that risk. And thank you, <laughs> because that really, <laughs> it wound up coming into play, you know, specifically that experience that I was able to have. Um, and it was interpersonal. And that was, you know, when you're sitting across from a Chinese interlocutor and like trying to figure out what, you know, what they mean. If you've only ever read about China on the piece of paper, you're not going to, and you're so primed to think of them adversarially, you're not going to have a productive discussion <laughs> in many right. cases. Um, but, you know, and, and the tie from that to my current job is, as I always said, for many years, the hardest bit of diplomacy I did was never external. When I'm sitting across my Chinese counterpart, you know, they studied English. Like, usually their English is better than my Chinese. They've studied English. They've probably studied abroad. They went into this. They're interested in cultures. They're like, you know, we have a lot of these base values in common. Mm. Um, so we can 
and I know what they're there. They're primarily there to serve their country. I'm there primarily to serve mine. We understand, understand that there's things that we're not going to agree on. And like, we kind of get the bounds of it and we're only going to work in this gray space. And we all, on, it's like, we're all on the same page. And I actually respect them. I respect, they respect me. I respect them for that vocation. Like they've chosen public service too, as a profession. Like that's pretty great. And the, you know, I don't know. There's like this mutual professional respect you have for one another. I think people don't realize that it's like, they think, oh, it's all spy versus spy, adversarial, right. you hate the bad guy. And it's like, not that at all. Even amongst the generals, like one of the things I would do is I travel with these, um, this, the three and four stars who ran our agency. I was the desk officer with them. So I'd go with them to whatever country. And there was this like martial culture thing, martial military culture bonding mechanism they'd have with their counterparts over that value. Oh, the the similar general on yeah, the other the, side. Yeah, the similar general on the other side, the, the person doing the same thing where they essentially, yeah. they're both military officers, both military professionals. And this is like this, it's almost like this, you know, um, what do you call it? Like chivalrous, medieval, you know, this recognition of the adversary officer kind of commonality and, and respect. And it was, I think, really interesting and inspiring to me in a way that the professional, you know, you have chosen to serve your country and I've chosen to serve mine. And that is a value that we share. Um, but one of the hardest pieces of diplomacy I did never was with my counterpart because we had these, all these baseline values in common. And all we disagreed about was like whether this plane should be flying in this place or something like that. Um, the hardest diplomacy I did was internal to the Pentagon. So when I built this program of cooperation and we negotiated this over months, and then I had to go sell it to a guy that like flies fighter you know, a fighter pilot, a guy that flies like F-16s for a living, but now is a senior staff member at the Pentagon. He, we have wildly different values and stories. He didn't care about, like, this is, he's really, he's a guy in the Air Force interested in planes that I didn't want to go work for, you know, like, he's really passionate about his thing, but it's not my thing. And he didn't study language and culture. That's like never been his thing. He likes, you know, there's a personality type that goes with being a fighter pilot, right? Like, we're different people. And that was the harder sell. That was the real diplomacy. And now in this job, it's like all that part of it. It's all getting these agency heads to agree on things. The head of the APA and the head of ICE have to agree on a program for leadership development. Like <laughs> it's, mm. I don't know. So trying to get that, that piece of it has been kind of the interesting tie, but that realization of, of, it's not, it's not so obvious who, who is the easier person to talk to in those situations. Hmm. Well, that, that's a pretty amazing story, you know, that, uh, you didn't set out. It doesn't sound like you set out to follow this path. <laughs> it was an accident of how do I pay for college first and foremost, right? Yep. Um, but you stuck it out, uh, through periods that for someone with face blindness, uh, you know, you, you were putting yourself in harder and harder positions, but you're able to develop this uh, reliance on body language, which turned out to be a huge asset in the job that others don't have. That's really, really interesting. I think to some degree, the fact that I didn't know I had it is part of what made that possible. Like, I think if someone had told me I had this weakness, I would have noticed it everywhere. And But I just thought it was hard. I thought that's how hard it was for everybody. Right. And I had this arrogance of like, well, anything, if other people can do it, I can do it. There's no reason I can't. And like, didn't even occur to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. In some ways, I'm privileged to not have known about it until I was much older, I think. Where do you stand now? Like, do you um, 
tell people that you meet that, hey, I'm probably not going to recognize you? <laughs> uh, are you still trying to hide it? Or uh, have you found any cure for it in any of your uh, F- fMRI cognitive studies? <laughs> no, <laughs> please sorry. tell let us me, if let there's me lead a cure. with like, no, there's no, there's no way out of this that I know of. Um, I've been toying like with, I've heard other people could describe as coming out, right? Like I've been toying right. with kind of doing that here in certain contexts. So it's not like a secret, you know, I talk to people in certain professional, I, we did like a, we're actually talking about a building, uh, when we're talking about how you secure federal buildings, this, this training seminar, um, and they did the kind of classic icebreaker thing where everyone goes around the room. Okay, tell me your name and one interesting thing about you. You know. Oh God, <laughs> did you do it? Yeah, so I've done it in a few times, a few, one or two situations, maybe two situations like that. Um, and that's like a good anecdote because people are interested in it. And I used to always rely on the international crutch, and then I realized like I just got, I just kind of got tired of my own stories. <laughs> you know. Um, but so I used to rely on that. And uh, so I've done it there and I've done it like I mentor somebody in the Forest Service. And so I talked to her about it a little bit. And I don't know, I've, I've thinking like, oh, I should do like a federal TED talk type of thing, you know. So I'm playing with it, but it still just makes me a little bit ner- like it's this idea that I could never I don't want to go back to my old career at this point. Like and I left intelligence. It was great. We built those. I mentioned we built those partnerships and they were awesome. And then they were there and there was kind of this well what's next and that's what caused us to blow up our lives and move out here because there wasn't a clear there was nothing else that was an interest as interesting as that work um so i don't think i want to go into that but lord knows my life has been a, a series of things i didn't think i wanted to go into and then found myself doing um but i realize now if like this is out and open i'm not gonna get hired in one of those jobs like I would, I would have never hired somebody I knew was baseline into a diplomatic position. Like that right. seems like a crazy choice, you know, um, it makes me nervous, but also it's probably good to explain to people why, why I'm randomly rude to them out there. You know, right. for the most part, people seem really comfortable around me and like me, but every so often there's someone that doesn't take to me. And I've always wondered, it's probably because I blew them off in the grocery store or something <laughs> like, or maybe they just don't like me, but I don't, I won't really know, you know, um, I don't know. So there's still a little bit of nervousness. And then there's also just to feel self-indulgent to talk about this. Like, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And people are like, oh, is there a cure? You know, you mentioned the cure thing. Like, I don't think I want to be cured of this. Um, it's just such an integrate. I don't have it nearly as debilitating as some people do. You know, I'm, there, there isn't any risk of me, I think, you know, not recognizing my own husband or, or you know, that the disassociation that comes of like when people feel like they're not even themselves anymore, people are the imposter. Have you, you know, this idea where, um, for whatever people, people disassociate like from another person in their life and then become, it's like a, a, turns into a a full on psychological delusion where they think that person's an imposter who's inhabiting that body. Sounds schizophrenic. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a version of that, but I've always wondered if that had some connection with face blindness. Like if you face blindness plus a schizophrenic break equals, this particular delusion, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it makes sense. Like, oh, I, you don't, I don't recognize you, but you're supposed to be this person in my life, but I don't recognize you. Like, anyway, I, I don't, I'm not of that like level of severity where I think that's going to happen. So it's not, it, fe- it would feel like losing some really, I don't know, all these other skills I've developed. I, I it's like, I don't, this is just who I am. And, and I'd be worried about becoming more average <laughs> in some way or something, you know? Well, that's interesting. You know, I think um, when you put it that way, you know, I've always said, yeah, I want it gone, you know, but um, 
when I was struggling with it the most, I, you know, that for most of my life, I didn't know that it existed. And I just really blame myself. Right. And you think you're dumb or you are like you said, you, you know, you're a psychopath who doesn't care about other people, (laughs) you know, the way normal people do. So you put all of that pressure on yourself. Um, Yeah, I would have if I could flip a switch and have a cure. Yeah, I I wish I could have taken that at, (laughs) you know, five years old. Um, But on the other hand, now that I know what it is and that it's out there and that it's a real thing and that it's not just me being a psychopath, then uh, I would say definitely it's moved into nuisance territory. That's it. It's just a nuisance you have to deal with. Right. Um, So I probably still would take the cure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Joyce, this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate you spending the time and sharing so much with us. Um, Do you have any other words of advice for people who are just discovering it? I mean, most people didn't learn about it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like you did. They're just discovering today. Well, I remembered a boat story. I don't know if it's the boat story, but I thought I'd share okay. the boat story. So yeah, please. One of the things we did every year in my old in in, in my old world uh, was we'd take all the heads of military intelligence for the Asia Pacific region for a conference. So these are you know the people of all all the intelligence services in China and Thailand and Australia and U.S. and all the and, and we go to a conference and because it, Bangkok hosted it one year and so the Thais hosted it and because it's Asia, right? You end up. You, you have to do karaoke. That's like par for the course. <laughs> yep. So you're sitting in this room with people that are running these, in many cases, notorious intelligence services, <laughs> to put it mildly, you know, which is a very surreal experience too. Like I'm in this room with these people and they rent, they rent a boat and they go down the river that goes through Bangkok. And so we all get on this boat. So you're trapped doing karaoke with these, you know, <laughs> occasional war criminals <laughs> um, on this boat. And, I was sitting at my table, and I'm not a I'm not a singer, you know. I, uh, it takes it takes a lot to get me up there, but um, these guys love it, and so they're doing their songs. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching, and I was like, "Man, this guy is amazing! He keeps going up." The Philippine a guy from the Philippines did it first, and he goes up and he sings this incredible ballad, you know. And then he sings um, it was like a Thai ballad, but it is an amazing ballad. And then he does uh, Country Road, <laughs> which is you know music in and of itself, but. This die military intelligence chief singing "Take Me Home, Country Roads," mm-hmm. um, but he's doing this wide repertoire of songs. And after like the sixth or seventh song he does up there, I kind of go to one of my cows like, "This guy is amazing!" Like, you know, we we spent just a week with him in meetings, and he was just kind of the stoic, you know, not very interesting guy who kind of never spoke up or anything. And then he's got this huge range and like doing all these different types of songs. And my friends like, "What are you talking about?" Like, no, I mean he's done like eight songs. So like. There's eight different people, right? You know that, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I thought this guy had like Weird Al level talent where he was just <laughs> moving from genre and song and like adopting mannerisms that were different and like changing his height. I don't know, like what I thought was going on. But um, anyway, I was the biggest fan of that guy <laughs> for about <laughs> five minutes, like. He's undiscovered. He could be the next great talent of the world. You know? <laughs> no, it's like eight different people singing eight different songs that they've all rehearsed a hundred million times because this is what they do socially every time they hang out. So, well, you couldn't have done uh, <laughs> that more perfectly. I think it it really is the the perfect ending story here because <laughs> that is the one I was thinking of. Okay, now that I remember, it was something about spy boat and war criminal. Excellent. And you, Here we go. And you all tied them all in. <laughs> 
Joyce, thanks so much. <laughs> but I bet you didn't know it involved country roads. So no. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, and thank you so much for the the podcast and doing this. Like I, you know, you've heard me reference so many of these other episodes and stuff. Yeah. But I think it's so useful for those of us who have this to kind of put a finger on what it is and understand ourselves a little bit better. And I'm just so appreciative of it. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye now. Bye. Thanks again. For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.